Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Right here in the studio, I have Gary Lightbody of Snow Patrol, who have their first album in seven years, Wildness, coming out May 25th. And we've already heard a couple songs from it. I got to hear the whole album, and it feels like a real step forward for you guys. I really enjoyed it. It's also extremely emotionally turbulent, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I think the genesis of the songs comes from some turbulence, for sure, but... Um, I like to think that there's a lot of hope in the record too um, for sure there's a lot of positive stuff in there but but yeah the genesis of the songs comes from some tough tough times I think part of what you're doing right now and going around and talking about this record I was thinking about it whenever a record comes from personal turbulence personal difficulties it ends up being this thing like oh god am I going to have to talk about all this personal <laughs> turbulence every single time luckily we're at the near to the beginning of your yeah. talking about this every single time but I, I do think about that. that that must be a weird thing I think if I learned anything from my um If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen experiences uh, with the record with um the issues that maybe founded the record i learned that talking about it is the best possible thing to do so it is actually it's actually good to keep talking about it in a way but i i there'll also be days when i don't want to and uh, um uh, that today's not one of those days i'll talk about anything you want but (laughs) (laughs) but uh but uh you know those days haven't come yet so we'll see but let's hear Life on Earth. Was that the one that you said in the show took you five years to write? Was it, or was that from yeah from not every day, but uh, from, <laughs> from from start to finish? I wrote the chorus first, and that came pretty easily. Um, I guess it's a kind of a, a, a universal, expansive chorus. And I, but then the verse, um, I couldn't figure out a melody to begin with um, that I felt complemented the chorus or at least ran up to the chorus on one or two melodies and then once I got the melody I'm trying to get the words uh, right life on earth is um well it's a rather wide subject matter so (laughs) (laughs) trying to retrofit it was uh was very tricky um so it did take a a long long time there is books and books and books of writing all all on that and I would say 99% of it is garbage so (laughs) I'm gonna definitely go home and uh um, make sure that those go in the shredder. 
Is that your usual approach? That's the sort of Leonard Cohen approach uh, to songwriting, where you just write and write and write verses, or Springsteen used to do that too. There's people who, who do that. That wouldn't be my usual approach. Um, I don't know what that says about my writing in the past, but I've always felt a little bit um, that things have come quicker, um, certainly a lot quicker than seven years, but I never really had a problem writing. I think it was because I was trying to write about different things this time. You know, I hadn't been in a relationship in a long time. A lot of the stuff that I'd done in the past was maybe based around relationships, you know, perhaps going through some tough times. Um, but I hadn't even been in a relationship in uh, eight years, or up to this point, I haven't been in a relationship in eight years. So to write about that would be fraud in the extreme. So uh, I wanted to write about something that was actually um, happening to me right that moment. Um, so... I think that's why it took so long, because I hadn't figured out how to do that yet. Let's hear Life on Earth. Ultimately, what what are you grappling with that with that song? And I, I really love the the drama of it, and the you, you can kind of feel some high emotional stakes going on in it. Those stabbing guitar things, and it's like, yeah, it's a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think when the when when the 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 drums uh, entered that track for the first time, I was like, hang on a minute, what's going on here? This is something. This this is something new. The the the, the, the this is something else. The song kind of uh, is. Um, prophesizes itself in a way and uh, what's going on in it I, I guess it's I guess I ended up um, trying to like write a, a, a song about uh, a, a part of my life and ended up writing a song about all of my life and um, um, every line in the verse is is a different a sort of um, time in my life from the very first um, story my mom ever told about me which wow. was when i was a baby and there was the biggest snow drift in northern ireland of all time <laughs> still to this date and uh, it was literally the height of me mm. um but i don't know how my mom knew that unless she actually <laughs> took me outside and plonked <laughs> plonked me down in it but uh, i'm hoping that wasn't what happened but you know the 70s were a different time so <laughs> so maybe <laughs> Um, and then you know, first dance, first kiss, first, first everything, um, uh, all the way through to you know being more reflective in, the, in in more recent years. And I think did you got wildness, the album title from the a line in that song. I think yeah, yeah. ancient wildness. Uh, the, the the album was almost going to be called ancient wildness, and then Garrett, <laughs> Garrett, also known as Jack Knife Lee, said, "Sounds a bit like Enya to me." And uh, <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with Enya, but uh, I think his point was that it's a little um, uh, new agey or something. Um, so um, wildness made a hell of a lot more sense, and that wildness actually features in the song "Heal Me" as well. So it does sort of permeate the record. And this sort of the, the depression you've talked about going through, because that's when I, when I heard the line, you know, shouldn't be so fucking hard. I'm like, well, yeah, and it shouldn't be, but it is, often is for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, and and a hell of a lot of people have it a hell of a lot worse than I ever did. And uh, you know, I've uh, at least I can, um, uh, you know, there are many things in my life that have gone extraordinarily right, and I'm very grateful for them. But um, I also one of the main things is that I get to write about it, and a lot of people don't have that outlet. They don't have an outlet that actually gives them place where they can um find a way out of the darkness that they're in and and that, that's been the most helpful for me 
even when I'm banging my head against the wall trying to come up with the lines and words, it um, it's still better than just sitting in the dark, um, staring into the abyss. Um, but uh, but yeah, the uh, you know I'd struggled with depression since I was a teenager. Um, grew up in Northern Ireland um, at a time when the most usual question on the street was, "Are you Protestant or Catholic?" And I didn't see myself as either, and mm. uh, um, I didn't understand why everybody was. I mean, I was raised in a Protestant faith, an Anglican faith, but I didn't, I, I, I never really was that connected to it, and I'm certainly not now. And uh, it really confused me as a kid why everyone was hating on each other and and fighting and dying and killing each other. It didn't make any sense, and I think growing up in that environment made me feel very isolated. Hmm. Um, I didn't realize at the time that there were a lot of kids feeling exactly the same thing, and the generation that I came from was the first generation that actually move towards peace and now we have peace and it's a different place northern ireland you know i i have a place there i've moved home i love it there it's become you know a big part of my heart in, in a way that i was trying to you know the same way that i run toward it now it was the you know i was i was running just as fast away from it as a kid <laughs> and um i think it affected me deeply and that's what i was sort of struggling with that alienation isolation um that that sort of followed me around until i dealt with it in more recent times even your your previous album you actually spoke of uh, about of writer's block yeah yeah the writer's block is one thing but this wasn't this wasn't this wasn't particularly writer's block in that it was it writer's blocks you tend to have a subject matter and then you then you then you maybe don't know how to write about that subject matter i didn't even have any subject matters at the time i think that was just trying to figure out what to write about was the first thing and once i did once i knew that i wanted to be I mean, I was always honest in my lyrics, but like, you know, brutally honest about um, my mind, about my family, uh, about, about what my dad was going through, about my alcoholism. All of these things, when you start to list them, they make it sound like the record's very depressing, but it's really not. Um, because, you know, I, I definitely see the light in all of these things. You know, even in the song about my father's dementia, uh, it's it's created a powerful bond between us that we perhaps... I mean, we've always had a bond, but maybe not as strong as we have now. Um, we actually made a video for that song where him and I watch old home movies together. And I, wow. And it is... When I explain it to people, they think, oh, that must be really, like, sad or, or, or you know, like, you know, you're bound to be crying during I find myself laughing so much during it because my dad's hilarious. Mm. Um, the videos, the home movies are hilarious. There are moments when you're, you know, you're deep. I was, I'm, I was touched, and a lot of people are touched by it as well. But it's not, it's not a sad video. It's an extremely happy video, I think. Um, and it really sort of turned the song kind of into this positive light for me. And uh, yeah, uh, my, I'm getting to spend the day with my dad filming on set, where he would hmm. forget sometimes where we were, and he would say. He would turn around and go, "What do we do in here again?" Or and then other times I'd be like mid singing, you know, I'd sung through most of the takes. He would sort of interrupt me. I go, "This is great, isn't it?" <laughs> 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 and I would just be laughing. And that, that those shots have actually been incorporated into the video where I'm la- where I'm laughing, and uh, it, you know, it, it really it was a really beautiful day. You uh, way before this record, you've talked of like at least attempts at quitting drinking. I don't know if that was to an extent where you thought you were an alcoholic or you just thought you were drinking too much because there's a difference, obviously. Well, there's a big difference between um, alcoholism, depending on where you're from in the world, you know, 
Um, I'm an American alcoholic. I'm an Irish drinker. You know, this is a, it's a big, big difference. Um, I don't think there are any official alcoholics in Ireland. We just drink a lot. <laughs> you either drink or you don't, and you probably drink, um, or at least you used to. And you know that. Um, and it wasn't. I got to a stage with drinking where I it wasn't fun anymore. I, it was creating too many problems for me in my in my health, um, and also in my mind. You know, like I would go out and get drunk every 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 day, and sometimes just by myself. I'd just be sitting in a bar by myself drinking and. And I'd always promised myself that I would never do that, mm. that I would never drink alone. Were you ever writing songs, using alcohol to kind of like loosen up the creative processes? You I never wrote a song drunk in my life, which is a lot of the reason why it took seven years to make this record, <laughs> because for the first five of them, I was hammered. And then, you know, two years ago, I quit. And, you know, lo and behold, I mean, as as if by magic, we uh, we started working almost, almost um in earnest with gusto what was the first seed to start this record life on earth was the first thing written as i say you know five years ago the chorus was written um but the first thing and then i spent a long time kind of writing songs not being happy with them um feeling like i was getting nowhere getting very depressed garrett and i went through a lot of tense moments in our lives where um you know he'd be sort of pushing to create and I would be re, um, resistant to it. Um, I think it'd be really interesting interview if, you know, he spoke, I mean, he speaks very candidly but to find his, get his perspective on the record as well because I'm sure he was tearing his hair out at times with me and my um, resistance. Um, and it was, you know, it was more personal resistance to anything. I think I was, I think I enjoyed living, I was, I was you know, spent a lot of time in LA and I was, um, the sunshine is uh, is is good for your mind, but it's it's not as good for your creativity. I don't think. I think that's why so many <laughs> bands come from Ireland and Scotland because it rains all the time and everyone has to stay indoors. But um, but yeah. So uh, the first song we wrote was "Don't Give In," all the way through. That was finished probably I don't even know 2014. Um, and uh, so that was the first sort of indicator that oh okay hang on a minute something 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 could be done here, and we could definitely get a record. <laughs> I can definitely still write a song. <laughs> and uh, that's a scary feeling to feel like you might not be able to still write a song. Yeah, I read this thing. Um, I read this thing by Henry Rollins, who is you know I'm a big fan of. Actually, my first gig that I ever went to was Red Hot Chili Peppers, supported by the Rollins Band in the Ulster Hall in Belfast in 1991, and uh, Rollins just blew me away just blew me away I was, I've been a fan ever since um, I went to see the Chilies and, and loved them but but properly fell in love with Henry Rollins and um, he said this amongst his many gems he said when asked why he doesn't make music anymore he says I had my I've had my time I've had my music it's used up mm. you get a certain amount and then you don't get any more and I thought oh shit <laughs> I've had my music it's used up. This is speaking from a man that I respect, a man that I have, have been a fan of for years and years. Why would he lie to me? Um, and, you know, he's not lying. He says, this is his own truth. That's what he's saying. But, you know, I, um, I've come to realize that if he is true, and I'm, I'm sure there's truth in it, um, I haven't used my music up yet. 
Thank God. Let's hear uh, Don't Give In. Don't give in. No, you dare quit so easy. Give on. There you got on the soul. Don't say. Yeah, I was going to ask you who you're talking to on that song. Well, initially it was a friend of mine who had um, been going through something pretty um, severe and had tried to take his own life. And um, it was just a simple message to him. And as, as I was writing, I realized that maybe I hadn't been so far from that, those thoughts in my life at times. And... It started to become, you know, uh, you know, it was all, it was always um, about him, but it also became about me, and then it became about the record itself, <laughs> where it was like, so many times I thought I can't do this, as I've already, you know, uh, touched on, and you know, it became a kind of a, a torch to kind of follow, and like so, just literally telling myself not to give in. So even after you wrote that song, it wasn't like the clouds parted. There was still struggle. What? How did that take place? Um, yeah. So then uh, I went into another period of I was still drinking at the time, um, and I went into another period of kind of the dark ages um, where you know things didn't come as easy, mm. and I was struggling. And it was really only after I quit drinking that you know things. And about six months after that. I think you need about six months to sort of clear, clear everything out. I mean, it's things are still clearing out. It might take years, but um, but it you know gives you that initial spring cleaning <laughs> to give you enough clarity and uh, per, uh, sort of perspective to 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 um, make another kind of uh, go at it. And uh, we were in the studio. I'd written a bunch of songs, uh, but just didn't have any lyrics and a song called high pop at the time i name songs silly things when i'm just to remember what they are um and uh we were we'd started um recording it myself and jackknife and nathan Connolly, our guitar player were in the studio that day and we'd um i think we maybe pretty much recorded it and i was listening around to it i was sitting at the uh, sitting at the desk garrett's chair which i don't normally do sitting in the big boy chair <laughs> and uh, um, I was writing um, you know mostly gibberish and then Garrett um, a lot of times during the day will put his whole studio was just vinyl all the way around the walls um, and it isn't for display you know he's he knows where everything is he pulls out you know there's thousands and thousands thousands of records and he pulls out things and we play records during the day and we were listening to a lot of different stuff peter gabriel was a big one during this record um, a lot of african stuff Ali Kuti, william onyabar um um listened to a lot of soul music um uh the staple singers was i mean mavis staples was 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 all over this record mm. um and uh and then he brought out Nick Cave's most recent album. It was fairly new at the time. Um, and the first track on that is Jesus Alone. And he put that on. And I kind of went into a, tra a trance. I mean, this, the, the, you know, the record, that record is about, you know, something extraordinarily tragic that happened in 
um, a cave's life, and um, yeah. it just profoundly went in the bass. Um, if you know that song, like has a vibration in it that just rattles your bones, it rattles mm. your soul, and it started to kind of like jar things loose in me, like in my in my psyche. And we listened to it ten times in a row. I just kept saying, "Just put it on again. Just put it on again. Something's happening. Something's happening." And then he put it on again, and I started to write. And then Garrett went, "Me and Nathan are just going to pop out. We'll get some. We'll get. We'll get a sandwich, and we'll come back in half an hour." This is the this is the sign of a like not just a great producer but one of the best to ever do it is to know when to push and to know when to get the fuck out of the room mm. um, because in the half an hour that it took them to go and get a sandwich I wrote the song every word in a oneer and um, and that song was Youth Written Fire um, high pop became Youth Written Fire thank God and um, yeah. uh, it is about you know my alcoholism whatever was going on in the f- in the fabric of the the song the cave song it was it was telling me to go deep 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 into my soul and uh i wrote a song about just <laughs> i guess my um my younger days of elasticity and uh um watching many many sun sunrises yeah. through the tattered curtains of <laughs> student flats and, uh, um, to my uh, more recent days when it just wasn't fun anymore um, and uh, uh, yeah that song changed everything because I started to write it with uh, uh, with Abandon then hmm. let's actually hear that Nick Cave song with my voice One of the things that was going on is you have a member of the band, Johnny, who's out writing with Ed Sheeran and yep. doing all sorts of things. How does that interact on a practical level with just trying to get Snow Patrol work done? Johnny does um, all his writing with other people when we're not in the studio or we're not on tour. You know what I mean? He doesn't. There's never been a point where Johnny's went. You guys have to wait. You know, he's made his priority us. We didn't um, demand that of him. He's just he's given that of himself I mean he's very he is very in demand at the moment and uh, I can't imagine what his inbox looks like these days um, uh, it must be piling up with people um, clamoring to work with him but um, he's not letting on anyway he doesn't really work on the actual songwriting with you does he we, we wrote Empress together Jackknife me and him wrote Empress together um, and uh, the music for Empress and there were some other songs we wrote maybe 10 or 15 songs together they just didn't they just didn't make the record this time but I would imagine in the future that those you know songs that we write together will start to are you surprised that this like shape of you style stuff has been in him the whole time is he that kind of uh, did, does he seem like a mr pop <laughs> upon first inspection um, yeah well i mean he's been producing co-writing with people for so many years you know i mean i've i've had the pleasure of, of working with um some people as well especially ed um so i know what that i know what that feels like um and ed is a joy to work with you know but it's uh, you know sometimes it's uh and I've I've lucked out and had got great had great sessions with with Taylor Swift and One Direction and Ed Sheeran, but um, but there's other ones that you know maybe I don't talk about so much that <laughs> you know we they're kind of like pulling teeth, you know, like you're you're in the room with someone and they don't know what to write about, and I always feel like, well, if you don't know, then I I don't want to go 
well, here's what I think you should write about. You know, it's like, I think it should come from the person whose name is on the record. Um, you know, so I can't imagine what he goes through. He never lets on that he's, you know, he's had a terrible time in the studio. He's always really positive about everybody. And um, But I would imagine there'd be some times in his life where he's thinking uh, what I was thinking in some of those sessions. Yeah, with uh, Taylor Swift, you had a song on the Red album last time. Yeah. What was that experience like? It was great. It was so fast. She she works really fast. She's extraordinary, actually. Um, we did that song, wrote it and recorded it in a, in a day, and... That was the that was the version that went on the record, which is very rare. That's very rare. Normally, you write, write and record something with somebody, and then down the line they'll record it. Uh, maybe, if you're lucky. Well, with her, the whole thing was done in nine hours, I think. We never miss a chance to play Taylor Swift. <laughs> Let's hear Gary with Taylor Swift on last time. Awesome. Has it been weird for you to watch? That was the kind of the last time I interviewed her was around that time, and and she's become like Taylor Swift in all capital letters. At that time, she was Taylor Swift like slightly smaller capital letters. <laughs> yeah, she's the biggest, uh, the biggest star in the world. Um, I, uh, I'm, it's, she's an extraordinary talent. Um, yeah, I can't speak more highly of her. And she's, uh, it was, it was amazing to work with her. I hope, I hope, I hope we can do it again sometime. Let's, I'm not uh, pitching, Taylor. You, uh, you know, it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and obviously you have your own working relationship with Ed Sheeran. You guys, what what is the what is the nature of the of the Snow Patrol Ed Sheeran uh, kind of bond? So when um, Ed was touring the um, the Plus album, the f- his first album, and he was, we were playing the same festival in Switzerland. It was a radio festival for Energy, and we. Um, like his dressing room was down the hall from ours. Well, first of all, on the plane on the way there from London, um, I was sitting in my seat being the good boy that turns up early, and Ed walked in on the plane, and we both looked at each other as if to say, "I know you," and he looked at me to say, "I know you," um, and uh, but we didn't say anything. And when I got to the got to the arena, I wrote a letter and I left it in his dressing room. Um, it's very abusive. No, I, I, uh, <laughs> I uh, said I was a big fan, and uh, and he um, uh, and that you know it'd be great to hang out, you know, if you if you wanted to. And uh, I went back to the hotel after sound check, and when I got back, our our tour manager who's sitting over there in the corner, Mr. Neil Mather, um, said that Ed had popped into the dressing room and said he'd love to hang out. And we went out that night and had a we had a great laugh, really great laugh, and we kind of bonded. Our our initial bond was. Ed hadn't wasn't completely covered in tattoos at that point, but um, he had a few, and I was admiring his tattoos. And I said, I, you know, the only tattoo I've ever thought of getting was a lyric by Bon Iver. And Ed, without missing a beat, said, "Everything that happens is from now on." And I went, "Holy shit! Did you just read my mind?" He's like, "No, I wanted that too." Whoa. And like, so we both wanted the same lyric by the same artist <laughs> tattooed on our arms. And I thought, yeah, this, this guy, I, 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 yeah, we're going to, we're going to be pals. And, and we have been ever since. And, you know, we, I've worked with Ed a lot and, uh, I've worked with him recently actually. Um, and, uh, he is by far the mo- has more ideas than anybody else that I've ever known. He is an ideas machine. It's just constant energy 
constant i mean he writes 10 15 songs in a go you know what i mean he's, he's not that i don't think he's ever he, he even understands the concept of writer's block it's uh you know it's an extraordinary thing to watch it's uh you know he's a, a, a massive talent massive the way the pop world is now it's kind of a world of of people like ed and who are very sort of genre agnostic or you know or or certainly not tied to rock and and just as you sit down and you know as if it isn't hard enough to just to make the album like how how do you factor into your thinking like god this is the way the world is now it's 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 not super friendly to rock bands in some way um yeah i think i think maybe um the way music is um found by people disseminated um it isn't super friendly you know the album isn't king anymore um but it still is king or prince at, at the very least to, <laughs> to a lot of people yeah. there are a lot of people out there that still love to listen to albums there are a lot of people out there, like myself and uh, i think you'll find them eventually I don't think that it's a lost cause by any means. And also, this is the environment that we have to work in. The song is not king in it. That's, that's, um, I almost rhymed there. I was going to say that's no bad thing, but um, I'm going I'm I'm to retrace my steps on that one. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think that there is a hell of a lot of great songs out there, and we want to bring out our best songs and be part of it. Um, I don't think we should be afraid of it just because things have changed in the last seven years because they were always going to change. How did you end up on Game of Thrones? And I actually want to, we should play your uh, little singing cameo on Game of Thrones. My filthy song. You're one of your biggest hits, no doubt. Yes. Uh, he lifted her high in the air. He sniffed and roared and smelled her there. She kicked and wailed and made so fair. But he licked the honey from her hair. From there to here, from here to there, all black and brown and covered with hair. He smelled that girl in the summer air, the bear, the bear, and the maiden fair. Pretty funny, and also, did you write that little ditty? Or? No, no, it's in the it's in the book. It's in uh, the third. It's in the third book. Um, but did the tune at least? The, uh, no, no, that was the that was the um, music. Uh, um, the guy that writes the score, the guy that writes the extraordinary music in, in Game of Thrones, the theme music and all that. Um, he wrote the 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 um, the tune, and I had to sing it on horseback. Yeah, and well, first of all, I had to. Um, learn how to ride a horse because I'd never ridden <laughs> I'd never ridden a horse yeah. before and um, but I'd watched the I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Buck no. um, it's on Netflix it's the most extraordinary documentary you'll ever see in your life I would say to people to whatever you're doing as long as it's not operating heavy machinery stop doing it and watch Buck um, it's the most extraordinary documentary it's about the guy that the movie The Horse Whisperer was based on and uh, this guy Buck Buchanan and he basically changed the way people break horses. You know, they break them gently now, and uh, um, basically stopped it, cut out the brutality that was involved. And you know, the, the the term "break" breaking horses comes from you know a very real thing what they used to do with all kinds of medieval equipment, um, even up until the you know the fifties and sixties, um, and probably even later. And anyway. I'd watched the documentary so many times, 10, 12 times, and I thought, well, I know horses. <laughs> That's how naive I was. <laughs> I know horses. I'm just going to, my horse and my, me are going to be pals immediately because I know Buck 
Um, and I got to the. You had to had to do a day horse training before the before I filmed. Um, it's all shot in Northern Ireland, which is very you know all the places I had to go to film and to train with the horses were 15 minutes from my house. And um, so I went over and I met my horse and I knew immediately this horse fucking hated me. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and it went on like that for the whole day. He wouldn't do anything for me. He wouldn't do. Any, he wouldn't move. On I was like, sort of like click, clicking my heels, moving the reins. I was talking to him in his ear. Come on, buddy, we can do this. Um, but that horse would not. He was not for moving. And uh, luckily, on the day of the filming, I was in procession of horses, so the horse just had to follow the horse in front of it, <laughs> um, or he would not have moved. I feel really deeply hurt by that still today <laughs> but i did want to take a, a look back for a minute because uh, i saw you guys at a very small club and a couple things struck me i mean you seem to be really having a good time and i, I think some of that maybe is just like after an album that's very hard to make it must be very satisfying to to get on stage and be able to play the old stuff, play the new stuff and see the fans react. That's what I, I guess. Yeah. I, I felt the weight of everything, uh, that I've been feeling just fall away during that gig from the minute I walked on stage to the end of it. I had a absolute ball. Um, we played in London a week, maybe slightly more than a week ago. And, uh, the same thing happened. I just felt this overwhelming joy. Um, I think that's that's what you need to do. You don't need to do. I can't speak for anybody else, but that's what I need to do is to separate the album from from the live. Because if I carried what I went through making the album with me everywhere, I you know like I wouldn't be able to last a you know a few months on tour. Um, so I think tour is for having fun. Tour is for for um, trying to you know um, have fun with the audience. Make sure the audience have a good time. I think you're. I think. It is. Uh, it's important to me that people walk away from our shows having had a, having had fun. What was cool is you know songs like "Run" and "Chasing Cars." To see that little audience singing it back to you, you I could tell you were really vibing on that, really enjoying it. But then I was also thinking like you've also seen you know huge festivals sing that at you, mm -hmm. but it seemed to mean possibly just as much, which was interesting to me. It 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 always means the same to me. It means the mo it means more than I can possibly ever. Um, I I wrote especially run. I wrote that song when I had nothing. You know, I had the 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 electricity had just gone off in the house, and I'd like to think it didn't have anything to do with the line "light up, light up," but it probably <laughs> did <laughs> subconsciously. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, we had we had we had nothing. We were bought, we were living in friends, sleeping on friends' couches. We were um, we were sleeping on the back of our uh, equipment in the van. We were asking when we were playing gigs to twenty, thirty people. We were asking the audience um, by three songs from the end if we could sleep on their you know somebody's living room floor. And somebody would always say yes. Yeah, and we'd met a lot of we met a lot of great people um, <laughs> doing that. Um, um, that was very Henry Rollins of you, actually. That was, you know... <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, that kind of punk ethic kind of informed a lot of our, uh, a lot of our early, uh, a lot of our early sort of days. The first 10 years was very punk um, um, because we, it, everything was kind of um, 
put you know fixed together with safety pins you know it was everything all our lives our minds our hearts our equipment our clothes um everything was sort of very close to falling apart at any minute and you know we went through 10 years of in obscurity Obviously, we weren't in obscurity. We were living in our own heads and <laughs> lives, but we were also shouting into a void in a lot of ways. And um, the the and run came along at a time when I think we were all certainly our parents and our close friends were probably saying, "That's probably it now. That's plenty. You know, you should probably get a." Should probably get a job. You should definitely. I like that's plenty <laughs> as an assessment of your career up until. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need to, um, you need to, you know, rest now, um, or at least work somewhere else. You know, and then we released the album Final Straw, which would go on to sell millions of records. But at the time, for the first six months, it sold the same amount as the first two albums, which is about seven thousand copies. Um, and then Joe Wiley, who. Uh, is a, a radio one, was a radio one DJ BBC Radio One DJ at home. And now she she was on BBC Radio Two. She had a daytime show and she played Run the album version, which was six minutes long, a song that we hadn't up to that point thought to make a radio edit of. Um, she played all six minutes of it in daytime radio, and the phone lines melted, and um, and it changed our lives forever. So that piece of luck. Um, changed everything um, and so that song even more than Chasing Cars although that means a lot to me too uh, means means the world to me well let's hear Run and not to uh, beat it to death but besides the lights going out what do you remember about the actual writing of I was in my um I was in my bedroom uh there are no pictures on the walls they're bare uh there are clothes towels on the floor it is a student accommodation even though I have not been a student in 7 years <laughs> the lights are off I, it's uh candlelight uh, because there's no electricity it's freezing cold my guitar has stickers all over it. Those are the things I remember. That's interesting. It's not how you wrote it, but you remember the... <laughs> I remember exactly everything That's about it. And I don't remember that for every song I've ever written. Um, I remember the chorus uh, happening for the first time and feeling something... There's a line in uh, one of my favorite books, um, Grab Onto Me Tightly As If I Know The Way, the the the, the, the central character, Vim, Vim Sweeney, uh, is speaking to a girl that he realizing that he's falling in love with but has only just met and he says something is happening here and that line floored me at the time and always floors me when I think about it and that's what I felt hmm. we should also talk about uh, chasing cars even if that doesn't have quite as much personal resonance for you let's hear that first of all if I lay here if I just lay here, would you lie with me and just forget the world? And you know, in America, that chasing cars is a very big deal, as you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I've heard. Yeah, I've heard tell. <laughs> First of all, I mean, what, what do you remember about that one, about writing it? Well, that one was written in a very different environment. I did say earlier in the, 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 our conversation that I hadn't written a song drunk, and that is um, not true because now I remember what ha. happened. Um, 
Garrett, Jackknife Lee, and myself were in his... He now lives in Topanga in California. He, at the time, was living in Kent, which is, you know, an hour... An hour, an hour I'll, I'll pronounce it in English rather than Northern Irish. Um, an hour away from London. And uh, in his old garage studio, um, him and I sat and we tanned, which is... Uh, Northern Irish Scots for drank. Um, we tanned uh, about three bottles of wine, and we wrote. I wrote a uh, about ten songs that night, back when I had my elasticity. Hmm. And uh, one of those was chasing cars, but four other ones. So five songs actually of the, those ten ended up on Eyes Open, which just went on to be our biggest selling record. To think of it now, it seems crazy to have written them all at the same time, but. Um, but yeah, we listened back the next day with kind of the you know bleary eyed and also bracing against the possible um, uh, you know mess we were about to listen to, and chasing cars stood out like it hadn't stood out the night before. I think in in whatever fog it was written in, and that day it was like this speaking that you know choirs of angels or whatever <laughs> we're singing and we realized we had something and when I played to the rest of the guys when I played to do anybody everybody went yeah, this is big like everybody from the start it was never a, it was never a, 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 a person that heard it that didn't go fuck me that's a big song <laughs> um, which you know we'd been burned a lot of times before we'd just had a f- hit record but our first in 10 years so we weren't in any way comfortable with where we were we were still very much feeling like somebody's going to tap us on the shoulder and go you're not supposed to be here you have to leave this party so we were mindful of not getting too excited about it but all around us people were getting excited about that song and they were proven right but you know i'm still i'm still not convinced it's a hit (laughs) <laughs> I'm not gonna. Allow, I'm not gonna allow myself to feel like we've had hits, you know, because uh, then you don't uh, you don't keep the foot on the accelerator. See, even now in 2018, you're still not allowing this to uh, to enter your consciousness. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I don't. I think it's. I think it's important to send the songs out into the world and then on, you know, and then let them be what they are out there, and and not think too much about um, what they mean to other people, because then you start to think about how you can write music. Um, that is going to affect people in the same way, and that is a that is there be dragons. You know, you, you can't ever guess what people want to hear. You have to write what what, what you want to what you want to hear. You have to actually probably take people out of the equation. That might seem like that's uh, mean to our fans. I don't mean that uh, t- to be so. I'm absolutely certain that our fans don't want to hear music that I think they want to hear. I mm. think uh, they want to hear music that's coming from our hearts. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Did you ever feel yourself falling into a trap of, I need a, a song for the radio on this, not this album, but in the past, like, especially when you were following up those hits, did, did you ever feel like, oh, we don't have the hit, I, I need to think a little bit about the radio here, did that ever creep into your mind? No, no, it perhaps should have, but <laughs> <laughs> um, cause I think we went, I think we went uh, kind of the other way on the next album after Eyes Open, 100 Million Sons, and um, we probably didn't, uh, we probably didn't. I made an album very much for for, for myself. Uh, um, that you know, a lot of that came from the structure of those songs, the arrangements, the every, pretty much everything came from demos that I'd made. You know, um, which is rare enough. You know, um, Garrett working from those rather than you know um, 
starting from scratch and uh, so that uh, that probably was a misstep um, but it's, a, it's probably the album that I love the most <laughs> apart from Wildness uh, 100 Million Songs is the one I feel most connected to but I don't think it connected with people as much as I would like well, I hear a certain purity in Wildness it, it does feel like you made something that that's focused on reflecting your sort of artistic info, impulses and, and the way you're feeling about life and the world and, and weren't thinking about radio or, or anything it feels like yeah know? no we weren't we weren't. We didn't think about how it would. Uh, we didn't think about how, how it would live in the world um, at all. And we we're only when we came up for air. We we that that's when you sort of go. Okay, well, what song should be a single? You right. sort of retrofit things you know, after you finished it. Which but, song can have the trap remix? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We had Mary from from our management Q, from Q Prime uh, is here right now, and uh, uh, we we had. Um, Peter Mensch and Cliff Bernstein, um, are, who run Q Prime, come and listen to the album. And they were the first um, people, the record company had, had heard it, but um, they were the first people after them that had heard the record. And we were kind of, we were really hopeful that they liked it. And they sat, I hope they don't mind me telling this story, <laughs> I just think it's really funny. They sat in silence. In between songs, there was silence. There was There was no sound from them. At one point, I think, I thought Cliff had fallen asleep. <laughs> and then at the end at the end of the of the, of us playing the record, which was pretty much the finished record at the time in order, the first words that Peter said was, Okay, track one, track five, tracks he knew every single song he knew were he knew what songs he wanted to be singles, he knew what songs were great, he knew lines from songs, he knew they were studying them. But it was terrifying. <laughs> it was the silence was absolutely terrifying. But it like it clearly profoundly profoundly affected them, and uh, uh, and you know I'm very grateful for that. That was the first kind of daunting experience of playing it to someone, and also a really uh, um, profoundly happy experience in the end. <laughs> the silence of the management. Yeah, exactly. So. You've been listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We were lucky enough to have Gary Lightbody of Snow Patrol in the studio. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We'll be back next week here on Volume at 1 p.m. on Friday. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you feel like it. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.